You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of political science at the University of Michigan and the director of the Weiser Center for Emerging Democracies, specializing in the politics and history of enduring dictatorships and emerging democracies, with a regional focus on Southeast Asia. Holding a PhD in political science from Emory University, his latest book is titled From Development to Democracy, The Transformations of Modern Asia. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Dan Slater. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. So firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and how this book came about. Sure. So this is a book that's co-authored with uh, Joseph Wong at the University of Toronto. And the two of us both have our uh, our academic roots at the University of Wisconsin, where we worked with the same advisor, Edward Friedman, who's an expert on uh, China and on democratization. And you know, one reason we wrote the book was that we wanted to be able to dedicate a book to him and all that he had uh, taught us about, you know, democracy in the region and the the potential for uh, democratization in Asia, despite the fact that you know people tend to think that. You know, democracy is a Western value. Um, that you know, Asian values are not so uh, not so commensurate with democracy. But you know, the, the point we want to make for starters is that you know, democracy is is every bit as Eastern as it is Western. You know, three of the most durable, stable, um, you know, high quality democracies in the world over the past decade: uh, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, in uh, East Asia. Um, not as much backsliding as we see in you know lots of parts of. Europe, Latin America, even North America. So that's kind of part of the inspiration for the the book. And we wanted to kind of think about and talk about the way that those countries came to democratize because they aren't well theorized. And I think that we tend to dismiss them, you know, as sort of, well, just it was just imposition of American power that makes Japan, Taiwan, South Korea democracies. And we want to tell a, a different story that I think take seriously the domestic factors in those places. And I think hold broader lessons for the variety of ways that democracy can still come about in an era when clearly, you know, democracies are under threat all over the world. Okay, um, perfect. So I wanted to start by talking about the democracy through strength idea that you that you mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. So as you've as you've talked about, democratization is often thought of as a last ditch effort for authoritarian regimes in political science, but that hasn't been the case for many Southeast Asian countries that have democratized from a positional position of institutional strength. So I think on the surface, that seems counterintuitive. Like, why would any regime or dictator loosen their grip on power unless they were in danger of losing it? Um, so can you tell us a bit more about this process of democracy through strength and what causes it? Sure. So it's certainly the case that, you know, oftentimes democracy comes about because a dictatorship collapses and is toppled. But that's, but that's not the only way that it can happen. Um, and what we see in this region that we call developmental Asia, which is 12 cases in Northeast and Southeast Asia that have all followed, 
you know, somewhat of a, you know, market oriented, but state interventionist model of, you know, export led economic growth or following in the Japanese model after World War II. We look at these 12 cases and we find that actually the, the modal path to democracy in the region has been democracy through strength. That these have not been examples of uh, authoritarian regimes being toppled by, you know, street protests um, or being forced to negotiate their way out of power under extreme duress. They've been instances when authoritarian regimes could see that they were popular. They had strong developmental track records. They'd been successful at reducing poverty for, you know, a matter of, of decades in, in most of these cases. And so this is the idea of the book, From Development to Democracy, so that with that, that track record in place, um, what you saw in places like, you know, certainly Taiwan is a very clear case, South Korea, Indonesia, I think is also an interesting example of this. What you saw was, you know, leaders who had authoritarian power sort of no longer needing to use power in authoritarian ways to stay in power. So as we say in the book, you can concede democracy without conceding defeat. And when you are a highly institutionalized authoritarian regime that you know has experience with multi-party elections, even if they're not free and fair, um, it has a strong state apparatus, uh, you know, and can have what we call victory confidence and stability confidence. So the idea that you expect that you can win multi-party elections or at least fare quite well in them, that elections are not going to lead to, you know, destabilization and and kind of a derailing of economic development when you have those kinds of confidence it can actually be strategic to concede democratic reforms when you're still pretty popular and when you're still pretty strong you know because our book has examples of cases where you know at least three examples cambodia malaysia and uh, hong kong where once um, these authoritarian regimes could have held freer and fairer elections and definitely won them. But over time, their popularity waned. They developed a lot more opposition and they wound up being in a position where they've got to use a lot more coercion to, to stay in power. So um, it might be counterintuitive, but in you know Northeast and Southeast Asia, in the cases we look at, it's been actually the most common way that, that democracy has come about. Okay, um, but then don't those those countries run that risk anyway? Um, so, I mean, assuming that they they democratize when they are in a position of popularity as well as strength, um, and then over time their population their popularity declines, um, don't they run the risk of um, you know losing power anyway? Um, right. So, so they run the risk either way. That's the thing. Is so leaders are always in a position of competing risks. So authoritarian regimes face risks. Um, you, know, you, you can be voted out in a democracy. Uh, you know, it's certainly the case that when authoritarian regimes get removed, the fates of authoritarian leaders tend to be a lot more unpleasant than when you get voted out of office in a democracy. So that's another reason why, you know, looking down the down the game tree, as it were, and thinking about, you know, is this a good moment to loosen things up? You know, another reason strategically that it can be, you know, an opportune move to, to democratize through strength is it tends to divide your opponents. So if you're an authoritarian regime, 
what often arises is what people call a negative coalition. Basically, the opposition unifies because they all want to get rid of the dictatorship. And they might disagree on religion. They might disagree on economic policy. They might have, you know, very little, you know, in the way of economic ideas that could actually attract voters who are accustomed to, you know, a record of of economic development. And they might be unified because you're repressive. But the second you stop repressing them, then the divisions within the opposition become apparent and they no longer have a reason to work together against you. And so that's what happened in both South Korea and Indonesia. You know, during the you know, Suharto regime, um, you know, during the, the, the Chunduan regime in South Korea, the opposition was much more unified. And once they called free and fair elections, multi-party elections, those opponents split. And that allowed in South Korea the, the ruling regime to win democratic elections. And in Indonesia, it allowed the old ruling party to, to finish second and actually end up with the strongest position in the executive through the cabinet. So there are reasons why democratizing can actually weaken your opponents um, in ways that you know aren't necessarily widely understood and appreciated. Okay, so I think this brings me um, pretty pretty well to some of the case studies that I wanted to discuss, starting with Singapore. Um, mm-hmm. So they have democratized in the sense that there is no extensive election fraud, but the PAP still overwhelmingly wins elections. Um, so I mean, of course, they they've been able to provide you know a lot of stability, a lot of growth. Um, they've been in power for a long, long time, um, and so I think for that reason, they they have a lot of um, favor with the public they have a lot of popularity um but at the same time um they they also have taken measures like uh, banning protests limiting you know the ability of the opposition to get their message out um doing those sorts of things that make it very difficult for an opposition to win um or or you know even even to sort of um become uh or put themselves in a position where they're competitive um, so what happened differently in this case as compared to other Southeast Asian countries that do have frequent changes in government? Hmm. Well, in Singapore, I mean, you you really said, well, I think you you described the reasons why Singapore is not generally considered uh, certainly a liberal democracy or even an electoral democracy by you know, most standards. Um, and that's because there is not anything even close to a level playing field between the government and opposition. Um you know, there's a lot of restriction on speech. There's a great deal of restriction on people's ability to start mobilizing support around an alternative to the People's Action Party, the PAP. Um, so you don't have a democratic regime in, in Singapore. And our argument is that they could get rid of every restriction they have on opposition and on the press and on speech and what have you. And we have every reason to believe the PAP would continue to win elections in you know thumping fashion, as they like to say. Um, and here, the example of Taiwan, I think, is a really, uh, you know, I think is an appropriate one to think about. You know, the KMT in Taiwan made the calculation that they could continue to win elections and to to you know concede democracy but not concede defeat and they were proven correct and i think that you know in singapore you could even there's an even stronger case to be made that again because of the developmental track record of the of the ruling party and because you know singaporean society has been so geared toward wanting the things that the pap provides uh, in terms of economic development, in terms of, of social welfare, that there's really no good reason 
uh, for Singapore to maintain the kind of authoritarian controls that they still have. And so Singapore could be an ideal case for democracy through strength because it's such a strong authoritarian regime. And it has all this experience with multi-party elections, as you said. Um, and we, again, we have no reason to think that they would you know, suffer some you know, much worse outcome because elections do provide a pretty good sense of the relative popularity of the PAP and its opponents. Now, so then the question, well, why have they not conceded democracy? So I think the main reason there, we would argue, is that is because of a lack of pressure. And so even though you know our argument is that you know cases like again taiwan south korea indonesia thailand in the 1980s that although they're democracy through strength that doesn't mean that these are regimes under no pressure whatsoever you know um if if there's just literally no pressure for change then it's unlikely that an authoritarian regime is going to change its its stripes um but what we're really careful about doing in the book is distinguishing between the pressures that a regime faces and the strengths that the regime possesses. So you could have a very strong regime suddenly confront very strong pressures for change. So South Korea in the 80s is a good example of that. Uh, I would argue Indonesia in the late 1990s was an example of that. But these are authoritarian regimes that have built up strength for decades and suddenly they're facing stronger opposition they're not in risk of being of being overthrown you know they're not at risk of kind of a you know of some kind of major violent revolution you know and then being you know you know killed in office or something like that this is not you know romania 1989 or anything like that right um but what they're able to do is look and see that you know they've got these strengths that they've built up experience and a track record that will allow them to succeed under democracy. And in a lot of ways, that's going to be a better deal for them. It also can help them geopolitically. It might help them, you know, in terms of American foreign policy, that's certainly not irrelevant to, to the big picture here. Um, and so Singapore really hasn't faced the kinds of signals of incipient decline, if you will, um, that, that tend to be moments when a strong authoritarian regime calculates, you know what, now is probably a good moment for us to loosen things up and we can expect to do quite well. And in, you know, five, 10, 15 years, we might be less popular than we are now. And that's the story you see in places like Malaysia, Cambodia, Hong Kong, again, where opportunities were missed to, you know, democratize when the, the ruling governments were, were still quite popular. Um, and able to win elections without a whole lot of, as you say, fraud, a lot of electoral repression. And so we see there are costs to missing missing that moment, to missing that opportunity. And that's another reason why we think democracy through strength can be a very rational, very strategic uh, decision for uh, for authoritarian regimes when they have built up strengths over time. Okay, um, but I still think one, one unique feature of um, Singapore is that they, they, I mean, and this is just looking to their their history. Um, the the way the the government was set up, um, you know, with things like you know having no protests allowed, um, a de facto one party state. Um, all, all of these all, all of these um, institutions were set up to provide a extremely stable, um, extremely peaceful environment um, for businesses. Um, and I think they've been extremely successful at doing that over the past couple of decades at attracting that they've become sort of a, a hub in the, in the area. Um, and so do you think that, um, even though politically, um, it might be strategic for the PAP to start to democratize that over time it could reduce stability and therefore threaten their business prospects? No, I don't think so. 
Um, Japan, you know, democratized. One party kept winning elections. Japan didn't destabilize. You know, South Korea, same story. Taiwan, same story. I think in Singapore, the PAP should have tremendous confidence. They should have tremendous pride in what they've managed to accomplish um, as, you know, the ruling governors of, of Singapore for the past, you know, 50 plus years. And you can parlay that success into, you know, again, free and fair democratic victories. And so, no, I don't think Singapore would become, a, you know, some kind of unstable place or a bad place to do business if, you uh, Elections were made free and fair. If the, the if the if the playing field was made more level between the PAP and its opponents, I don't see any reason why it would become uh, destabilized. There are there are stable democracies in the world. There are stable dictatorships in the world. And the biggest key to stability is state strength. It's not regime type. And so again, if Singapore you know democratizes, um, then just like Japan, just like South Korea, just like Taiwan, that strong state is still going to be there. You know, voters who, again, they want development, they want stability. It's what they've gotten and what they've gotten used to for, you know, for half a century and more. And so to to level the playing field would be, I think it would almost be like a like a, a very mild kind of drop in the ocean in terms of its its change to the stability of Singaporean society. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, too, that. You know, a lot of people, I think, now vote for opposition in PA, to the PAP because they want the system to become more open, become more transparent, become more democratic. And if the PAP were to basically take those issues off the table, if they were to preemptively say, OK, we will you know, make things more transparent, we will, you know, make things more more level. We will, you know, make things more, you know, more free for people to, you know, to assemble and to, you know, publish their ideas in the media and things like this, that they would take those issues away from the opposition and then they would compete on their bread and butter issues, which is how they provide development. And so I think the the lessons of elsewhere in, in Asia should provide a ton of confidence to the PAP in Singapore that this would be a great time for them to, to loosen things up, um, to democratize the political system. And, you know, again, I see no real reason why this would lead to, you know, some kind of destabilization or some real reversal of economic development. If anything, you know, we, we've learned that, you know, the richest economies in the world and those that really can economically upgrade um, and really become more creative economies with creative, you know, services production are often, you know, freer societies. And so I think that um, if anything, the Singaporean model is reaching a point where it could be holding that kind of economic success back as Singapore tries to move it to the next level and become, you know, truly a first world economy. Okay, um, fair enough. So I wanted to, to switch gears and, and ask about China, um, mm -hmm. which seems to have really broken the mold here, um, experiencing rapid growth without democratization over many decades. Um, in fact, they seem to be going sort of in the opposite direction, um, backsliding um, even even more in past in the past couple of years. So can you tell us a bit about how China managed to evade this typical correlation between development and democracy and, um, you know, how, how they differed from their neighbors? Well, in terms of economic development, you know, China's got a lot of similarities with, you know, with its rapid growing neighbors. And so, you know, we make the argument that there's this region we call developmental Asia um, with 12 cases in it that have all, you know, kind of more or less followed in the footsteps of what Japan was the first to do. But we have a you know, series of cases in Asia following in Japan's footsteps. 
And China is, you know, importantly, it's a, it's a laggard. It's a latecomer to developmental Asia. And its reforms came, you know, decades after, you know, places, you know, I mean, certainly Hong Kong, Taiwan, but even, you know, think about Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore. These places were way ahead of China in terms of embracing the kind of export-led, you know, uh, open to inward investment, uh, you know, kind of economy. And so China comes to this late. And, you know, we argue that we could divide developmental Asia into four different clusters. Um, and China is the at the forefront of what we call the developmental socialist cluster, along with Vietnam and Cambodia. So it has distinctive features, uh, for sure, in its political economy uh, that make it different from, uh, say, a, you know, a Japan or uh, you know, a Malaysia, for instance, right? Or certain, or from Hong Kong. You know, I mean, Hong Kong and China are really kind of a bad economic fit because they're from different developmental clusters. Hong Kong is, you know, kind of comes out of what we call developmental Britannia with these strong, you know, British legacies, which China obviously does not have. So China's coming at this from a different angle, but it's going through a lot of the same kind of processes and, you know, having this rapid economic growth. And in some ways, China actually, you know, resembles its Northeast Asian neighbors, um, Japan, you know, Taiwan, South Korea, in the sense of its uh, what people call techno nationalism. Um, that there's a real commitment not only to growing quickly, but also to be, but to becoming a, a technological leader in the world. And China has been, I think, you know, astonishingly successful. And I think su successful in ways that have surpassed a lot of its Asian neighbors in ways that I think are a surprise to a lot of political economists who thought that, you know, China was going to have a really hard time doing that unless they protected property rights in the same way as, you know, the argument is that, you know, European and American economies, you know, did historically. So it's been, you know, a real economic uh, success story clearly for, for decades. But again, you know, the growth model is hitting limits. It's hitting some real problems. And again, this is China's not the first one here. This is something where, you know, the problems in its banking system, its problems in sort of generating domestic demand and transitioning from a really export dependent economy to one that can actually generate, you know, rapid continuous economic growth and rising living standards through domestic demand and domestic consumption. China is struggling mightily to do so. And it's not only because of COVID. COVID is, is certainly you know, making things a lot harder. But China, too, I think the, the CCP has to take a long look at you know, the problems it's facing and think about you know, whether or not you know, more of the same is going to get China through. Uh, you know, and are we going to see you know, 20 more years of similar economic success if they don't change in a pretty radical way? the way they operate politically and economically, I think that's a big question. I think it's it's far from a sure thing. So China can look just like other countries in, in Asia, just like Vietnam, just like Singapore, look around developmental Asia and say, well, look at how you know these countries have become real first world economies under democratic conditions. And is it really the case that we could not do the same? And is it really the case that remaining authoritarian, staying a single party regime, um, you know, staying as kind of, you know, sort of state-led economic growth, you know, not giving room to markets um, that China's doing now. Is that going to be the way that China becomes the world's leading economy? It, it's possible, but it would it would require doing something that has really not been uh, done before. Okay. Um, so I think with President Xi's changes over the past few years, it seems like the, the CCP's source of legitimacy is becoming more more charismatic, um, like it was under Mao. Um, I think President Xi is starting to look and feel more like a, a Mao-like figure. Um, so I think now, while this might, might 
bring stability um, under under a competent leader, as we've seen countless times across the world. That's often not the case. And President Xi's death could leave a a power vacuum. Um, you know, could could create tremendous instability. Um, so even though China has experienced this development without democratization. Do you think that this economic position is less stable in the long run as compared to places like South Korea or Japan? Um, and and where do you see the potential for um, the, the future of Chinese democracy? Yeah, I am less confident, I would say, in China's economic growth trajectory than I am of, say, Japan and South Korea. But they're at very different points in kind of the you know, development process, right? I mean, Japan, South Korea, they don't have the same kind of growth rates, but they've also like really seriously upgraded to becoming, you know, world leading, you know, technological, you know, export leaders in, in a bunch of leading industries. And China is starting to, but, but it's certainly not there, not there yet. Um, China has got real problems in its, in its financial system, right? It's got, you know, real problems with, you know, financial bubbles. It's got, you know, real problems with, you know, shifting to domestic demand, as I was saying. And so there's a real transition looming here for China. And, you know, at this point, you know, obviously it's, it's grown the way it has by being the, you know, one of the world's leading export economies. And so as China tries to decouple, you know, from, uh, you know, the United States, um, it's a real question, you know, whether or not China will be able to do this successfully. I think it's a it's a very very big question mark, um, and so they're going at these things in a new way. And I think politically, I think Xi Jinping has basically squandered, you know, maybe the most important aspect of political order, stability, and institutionalization in China, which was the predictable rotation of power, predictable succession. That's one of the hardest things for an authoritarian regime to do, is actually develop a stable, predictable, orderly system of leadership succession. They had it, and they've lost it. And if you don't think that there's plenty of people in the political elite among the economic elite who are deeply uncomfortable with Xi Jinping's, you know, kind of grab of much more autocratic personal power, I assure you there's a lot, there has to be a lot of dissatisfaction under the surface. And so it does, I think, lead China into more, you know, unpredictable directions. And I think that, you know, again, like other authoritarian regimes in, you know, Northeast and Southeast Asia, you know, for all their repression and, you know, for all of the, you know, the, I think, you know, the, the kinds of behaviors that should be condemned, you know, in terms of human, human rights, um, you know, certainly not just in China, but around the region, th- these are regimes that have been committed to economic development. They have been committed to raising the standards of their populations. And that really differentiates them from a, you know, a North Korea, for instance, right. Or, you know, Burma under the military, you know, the military regime right now, like these are real, these are regimes that there are different kinds of authoritarian regimes is my point. And, you know, China has always been one of, you know, several in Asia that have been very developmentally oriented, and they do deserve some praise for that. They do deserve some credit for that. They do, they have built up some legitimacy through that. And I think that, you know, whether or not China can keep doing this under under Xi Jinping and the way that he has moved things is I think things it's a lot more unpredictable now than it than it was 10 years ago, in my opinion. Okay. Um so even assuming President Xi hadn't made the changes that he has, um, you know, it could be 10, 15 years ago. Do you do you think that even in that case there was there was there there were prospects that someday we could see a a peaceful transition of power from the CCP to another party? So there are two different things here, right? So 
China can democratize without the CCP transferring power to another political party. Okay, that's the vital point here, right? When we think about, will China democratize? We almost always say, okay, will somebody overthrow the CCP? Will the CCP collapse, right? Will it crumble, right? The Probably the most important point in our book is it doesn't have to be that way. China can democratize because the CCP, like other ruling parties, you know, and ruling militaries in some cases, can simply say things are going to go better. Like it will be good for stability. It will be totally fine for us staying in power if we hold free or fair elections, if we stop using so much repression and simply compete on a level playing field with with our opponents. I mean, how long would it take for a a serious opposition to emerge in China to the CCP. It would be extremely difficult. If anything, you would probably see is different factions of the CCP would compete against each other. And you would see basically leading CCP politicians remaining the, the powers that be in China for decades after democratization took place. So it is not about saying, when will the CCP hand over power? Of course, the CCP is not going to hand over power, right? That's not what, what they're going to do. But what they can do is think, let's rule differently. And I think particularly when you look at what Xi Jinping has been able to do under the current system, if I was another you know, ruling elite in China, and if after Xi goes, because he's not immortal, he will eventually go, I would be thinking very long and hard about how do we, you know, secure the system so we can't have one leader take it over like this again and, you know, sideline, you know, other people within the elite and basically, you know, in a lot of ways attack the business class because I mean, Xi Jinping has really been going after the investor class in a way that, again, it's hard to see how this is going to be a good thing for economic development in China in the long run. And so in my opinion, you know, and democracy is a very long, illustrious, you know, tr- you know, intellectual tradition in China. Um, China has developed had has had democratic thinkers for you know for for centuries, and you know the idea that I think a lot of people in China's elite I hope will be able to you know look at at what our book has to say and say you know that China's you know the next thirty years as opposed to the last thirty years might go a lot better in China if it's more democratic a la you know it's you know it's rival Taiwan, uh, Japan, South Korea. And to set aside those questions of rivalry and say, well, China can be a democracy on its own terms. It doesn't have to be a democracy like Japan or like South Korea, like Taiwan. It could be its own kind of democracy um, and might have, again, a more successful you know, 30 years to come than if it you know, stands pat, doesn't reform, tries to keep all power, you know, within the CCP, which right now means in the power of, of one man. And as you as you said, Adi, that leads to new levels of unpredictability. Um, and I'll just give you an, a, a comparative example here. You know, Malaysia until the 1990s was very, very stable authoritarian regime, collective rule, predictable succession. And then what you had was the prime minister, Mahathir Mohamed, really began personalizing power, began like really excluding, marginalizing other elites, you know, sacking other talented politicians who, you know, had a, you know, had a lot to offer the country, to be honest. And, you know, basically avoiding economic reforms at, at all costs, you know, cracking down in a way that no Malaysian leader had cracked down on opposition before. And what you saw was, you know, the country really took a downward turn. And for the next 20 years, you saw this slow, gradual decline in the fate of the ruling party and the ruling coalition in Malaysia to the point where 
they can no longer win free and fair elections. They couldn't even win an unfree and unfair election. The, you know, the, the last elections were, you know, far from free and fair. And yet they still, the ruling, the ruling party, the ruling coalition got really got thumped. Um, and so you can look at these cases and see authoritarian regimes when they fail to reform, um, you know, they don't tend to get more popular over time. Um, they tend to, to, to lose popularity over time. Um, they tend to face really tough choices about political and economic reform that if they avoid them, um, don't lead you to being in a stronger place. I mean, Hong Kong is an even more dramatic example of this, right? Um, where you see, you know, again, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you know, there wasn't a lot of opposition to the idea that Hong Kong's part of China. Um, as long as Hong Kong has some autonomy, that was okay. Um, there wasn't a lot of dissatisfaction with pro-Beijing elites, but look at Hong Kong now. And so I think there's lessons here for, you know, authoritarian regimes like China that you have to be looking ahead and, you know, don't be too confident that you're going to be as popular, you know, in 10 years, 20 years as you are now. And, you know, what we've seen again, places like Japan, you know, Taiwan, South Korea, Indonesia as well, Thailand, you know, for, for a good while as well, democracy can solve a lot of these problems can actually be part of the solution. It's not the whole solution, but you know, state strength matters, economic policy matters. Um, but I think the solutions for these these regimes that want to see stability and want to be able to stay in power, you know, that more democracy can go a long way toward helping them do that. All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Slater. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Adi. Thanks for having me on. Okay, thank you everyone for listening to the Economics Review, and as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.